Thanks for tuning in to the Happiness Playbook, a podcast that supports your practice of play theory, a life strategy that helps you achieve happiness through hope, creativity, and validation of self and others. Here at the Happiness Playbook, we know that our attitude plays a huge role in how we handle the challenges that come our way. So listen up as we focus on the positive and share tips and practices to improve your happiness game. I'm Larry Florence, and I'll be your host of episode 110 of the Happiness Playbook. I just got home from watching my grandkids for the weekend, and we had some great times. Being with young children is a hardcore crash course in the four play theory principles. If you're up for it, belly laughs and great memories are the reward. One of the best memories that I have from the weekend is playing Beanie Babies with them. We happened upon a game where every time one of the Beanie Babies that we had named Aunt Eunice um, would go berserk if you said the word duck. So of course the kids would say duck and Aunt Eunice would attack and belly laughs abound. Talk about letting go and playing, which is the principle that we're covering in today's episode. But instead of crazy Aunt Eunice, I'll be focusing on the time I spent with the kiddos playing with Play-Doh, the sparkly neon kind, of course. But before we go there, I want to give a huge thank you to Melissa, who left a heartfelt review. And for all of the rest of you listening, it means so much to me if you take the time to do that. It's easy to do on your phone. Just scroll down where you're listening to the podcast episode till you see those stars. Click on the five-star rating if you haven't already, and you can just click on the little line that says write a review and type up a review and I get to see it and the rest of the world does too and it really makes my day. So this is what Melissa shared. I just finished listening to episode 108 about dealing with grief and anxiety and I'm so grateful I listened to it. It really hit home. I have often found myself trying to avoid my feelings, especially when my focus is needed elsewhere and choosing to allow myself to not process them. This episode was a great wake-up call that it's okay to be present and not process your emotions, but it's just as important to process them at an appropriate time later. Thank you for sharing the story about Steve the Cat. I remember being in Midsummer Night's Dream and hearing about his passing Lots of love to you, Larie. Oh, thank you, Melissa. I love hearing from you. Thank you for listening and especially for taking the time to write a review and sharing your thoughts. I remember Midsummer Night's Dream was the first public performance that we did after the COVID lockdowns, and I'll always remember how much the crowds appreciated just being out in a public setting again. It was truly magical, despite the shadow of Steve's passing. If you want to hear that story, you'll have to go back to episode 108. Melissa is a member of Take Note Troop, and she is a play theory ninja. She actually teaches high school improv with a focus on play theory, and she is in the starring role of the cat in the hat in Take Note Troop's current staging of Seussical, the musical, which opens the first week of December. If you live in the Sacramento area, go to takenotetroop.org to get tickets tickets, sorry. All right. It's time for our team huddle. How did you do with last week's play of the week where we asked you to share observed random acts of kindness 
on the Peace Dots Project Instagram page. Even if you didn't take the time to share it on social media, did you notice any moments of thoughtfulness or kindness? It's amazing how raising our interest in a subject or object increases our ability to see it. As I've been brainstorming ideas for this podcast, I see more and more applicable examples of play theory in action. So what are you focusing on? Be present with your thoughts so that you can be aware of the default scripts that are running your emotions. For our highlight reel, this week we are checking out an Instagram page of a repost of a fun yes and moment. If you want to see the post, we'll have a link on our show notes. Someone sent a text with a photo of her possible choice for an evening gown to a friend. Well, actually, can you relate? Uh, She thought it was a friend, but it wasn't. Have you ever fired off a text to the wrong number? Well, this young lady did so to total strangers. Have you ever gotten a wrong text or a wrong number? How do you react? The recipient in this story was a play theory master. Instead of replying, ooh, uh, hmm, wrong number, or even worse, taking advantage by saying something derogatory at the young lady's expense, this guy who happened to be a dad gathered his young kids together and asked them to give the dress a thumbs up. He took a photo of the kids with their fingers in the appropriate pose, and then he hit reply with this uplifting response. We approve. Talk about accept and build. He accepted the text, even though it was a wrong number, and then he built positive feelings out of what could have been, at minimum, an embarrassing situation. And as the universe eventually gets around to doing, it then said yes and to all of this by making sure this uplifting moment was shared on social media, which continued the good vibe train. Okay, it's time for our play theory practice session and for Plato, as I promised. How long has it been since you've indulged in some good old time playing with clay? Who remembers the wonderful squishy texture that is so pliant without being sticky? Rolling it out into snakes or just squishing it in your hands over and over is so soothing. Clay is an amazing medium. Real clay, not the Play-Doh kind, is hugely important in archeology span as the pot sherds of broken pottery found in archaeological digs, is an invaluable tool in identifying civilizations. Clay is a naturally malleable element found in nature. Over the millennia, mankind has learned to shape it and fire it into long-lasting, although fragile, objects of art and utility. Quick shout-out to the Great Pottery Throwdown program on HBO. It's modeled after the Great British Bake Show. So... I had no idea that clay could be used to make so many different things, but after watching the show, uh, you can make lamps. I mean, I guess it makes sense, but toilets, um, one of the things, uh, chandeliers, plus all of the food dishes that you use and eat off of, and of course, your vases or other objects of art. I am so grateful that someone way back a long time ago decided to let go and play with the spongy gooey glob of earth they happened upon. Fast forward to my two-year-old granddaughter, Faye, rolling out her little orb of Play-Doh and flattening it so she could press her butterfly cookie cutter into it over and over and over. She was mesmerized by the patterns made by the impressions of the shape. 
Once she'd covered the piece all over with the pattern, then she'd roll it into a ball, erasing the lines to flatten it out and start all over again. There really is something magic about clay's plasticity. Our brain is like clay. It's squishy and malleable, and even a pinkish-grayish color like the shade white Play-Doh turns when played with by grimy little fingers. And that's not all our brains have in common with clay. Just like my granddaughter's little patch of Play-Doh, our brains are highly impressionable. Our thoughts create patterns that are ingrained as they are repeated. That can be good or bad, depending on the thoughts we're thinking. And what's really challenging We're often not even aware of the thoughts we're thinking. Oh, the things you can think. We're two weeks out from opening Susical, and these songs are sticky. Wonderful, but sticky. Uh, Back to our thoughts. Have you ever tried to be 100% present with them? They're slippery and hard to slow down enough to track them down so you can take a good look at them. I love it in Harry Potter when Dumbledore would use his wand to extract a thought and then deposit it in some type of a tool. I don't know if it was the pensive. I don't know what it was called, but I I thought of it in my mind like a bird feeder and the thought would, not a bird feeder, a bird bath uh, was something that the thought could float in so that you could stand above it and examine it. That's not possible for us to do, so we have to try to identify them using our other thoughts. Now, our brain is highly, it has a lot of plasticity. And just like with the Play-Doh, each thought makes an impression, technically a neural pathway. And since the brain loves to conserve energy, it will look for these pathways to reuse them rather than forging new ones. It's just so much easier to go with the same old idea than to forge forward through the untraveled terrain of the brain. I attended university in a place where snow fell and stayed on the ground and thus had to be navigated through. On campus, once a trail was forged through the white fluffy blanket of freezing cold damp, that would become the favored path. No venturing off into the unblemished whiteness, even if a new path would shave off some time. The brain does the same thing with thoughts. This can sound pretty discouraging, but there is hope. We can change patterns and create thoughts with a little effort. This is made possible by the brain's neuroplasticity. Think about Play-Doh. You make a squishy penguin, but you're not satisfied with it, so you roll it into a ball and make a cat. The possibilities are endless until the clay dries up, but that's a whole other topic on the physiological components of a healthy brain. For regular brains, This neuroplasticity is a great thing that we can count on. We can remake our thoughts, which become our outlook, which become our mood, and eventually our personality. My husband, McKay, has an outgoing personality. It is very confident and proactive. He sees things and people in a positive light. For example, yesterday we played pickleball at our local outdoor pickleball club, which means you cross paths with a wide variety of players and personalities. Most people are generous and kind. One woman we played with was feeling frustration with her partner, and every time McKay or I scored a point against them, she was verbally and physically upset, saying things like, no, no, and then remonstrating to her partner, telling them what they did wrong. 
At one point, she argued about a line call, and by the end, she was what I'll call cheerfully angry. She smiled, but was still visibly frustrated. Afterwards, I told my husband I did not like playing with her because of how upset she was. He refuted my observation and said that he didn't think she was angry. She was just competitive. I told him that I didn't think the way she treated her partner was nice, always telling him what he did wrong and instructing him on how to do better. But McKay didn't see it that way. He thought she was just being helpful. We were both there on the same pickleball court, experiencing the same shots and attacks and putaways, but we each had a very different experience based on our outlook or personality. I don't know how much personality is biological and how much is nature or, I'm sorry, nurture, but McKay did have a pivotal moment in his developmental years that was indeed self-nurture that has served him well and become deeply ingrained in his gray matter. He remembers a hard day at school in his junior high school years. You know those years. Kids can be so cruel as they're figuring out social currency. He'd come home feeling glum and retreated to his room. In the midst of feeling sorry for himself, he remembers having the thought that he could just decide that the other kids liked him and stop worrying about whether they did or not. And since he knew he was doing his best to like them and treat them with kindness, he could stop worrying about it. Then he took it a step farther and decided that he could like himself no matter what anyone else thought of him. He remembers going into his bathroom and looking into the mirror and telling himself that he liked him and that if other people didn't like him, it was okay. It was their problem and not since, not his, since he was doing the best he could to love others. He's carried that thought throughout his life, assuming the best and expecting that others will think the best of him because he's thinking the best of them. And guess what? Remember our talk about self-fulfilling prophecies last week? As this new thought became the go-to pattern in his brain, his very capable brain got working on identifying evidence that he was worth loving and that others liked him too. When the rare person is not receptive to his outgoing effusive positivity, his brain is really good at identifying it as something going on with the other person and not him. On the pickleball court, when the gal on the other team was growing more and more frustrated, his brain, that is highly skilled at seeing the positive, saw her efforts to stay calm and her smiles and apologies and summed it up as something entirely different than my brain that is well-practiced in finding the negative. Now, before you write me off as a total Eeyore or a negative Nell, I'm not all gloom and darkness. I am better at seeing it, though, than McKay is. Interesting, huh? And that ability to see the cracks, the faults, the problems ends up being super valuable when I'm trying to solve a problem or when I'm directing a show. If you can't see what's wrong, how can you fix it? So no one has to feel bad about where they're at in their outlook. What I want to share is how our outlooks are shaped by our thoughts and that our thoughts create pathways that our brains will fall back into unless we're proactive about creating new ones by being present with our thoughts and intentions. The brain's ability to rewire is incredible. In the blog, Declutter the Mind, the post by Amber Murphy called Neuroplasticity, Rewiring the Brain in 2022, has some really great advice about how to use our brain's squishy nature to help us achieve our highest happiness. 
Before we get to that, though, here's a few physiology tidbits. Neurons are the nerve cells that serve as the building blocks of the brain and the whole nervous system. Neurogenesis says that the brain can replace dead or damaged brain cells due to reasons like old age, trauma, and so forth. So think of a neuron like the pathways that we form in the snow when we walk between two places. Scientists used to think that our brains were much more finite and less malleable than they really are. In fact, scientists have now learned that the brain can actually heal itself. This process is called neurogenesis. The brain regenerates neurons and gray matter. Neuroplasticity is what we call the brain's ability to rearrange the information it is processing, like our play theory principle of let go and play. It, let go, it lets go of the old stuff and keeps moving forward with the new. I have a great niece who has some kind of a very rare brain disorder that was causing her to have severe seizures while also stunting her growth on one side of her body. The doctors do not know what has caused her brain to be so stressed out, and they worked for years to help her and to alleviate her suffering. Eventually, the seizures became very problematic. And this last year, after lots of testing and observations, the doctors decided to remove half of her brain. Crazy. The idea was that that part of her brain that was not responding to all the other options of treatment, um, and that it was where the severe seizures were originating, could be eliminated. Amazingly, my great niece, post-op, is doing great. She lost some of her vocabulary, but no other physical abilities. Her growth has evened out on both sides of her body, and the seizures have stopped. That is a huge case of neurogenesis and neuroplasticity, as the remaining half of her brain has taken on all that the diseased part had been controlling previously. The doctors think that because she had been dealing with these limitations for years before the surgery, the brain had already been doing the transfer of info before the surgery because the diseased half of the brain was failing. Our brains are truly amazing. So how do we put all of this neurogenesis and neuron plasticity to work for our improvement? In my niece's case, her brain used the brain's neuroplasticity to move its processes and other functions from the damaged area to other undamaged areas. We can use the brain's neuroplasticity, change patterns, and form new habits. If you have a habit you want to eliminate, it's nigh impossible to just stop it or let go. You have to also continue to doing something new or playing. Instead, we can rewire the brain to do other things. Think about that groove in the Play-Doh. Instead of asking your brain to ignore that well-used track, invite it to take another path and then keep doing it until the new pattern is more familiar than the old negative one that we're trying to replace is. Here are a few other helps Amber Murphy shares in her post that we will link in the show notes. First, identify your triggers. What sets you off if there's an activity or a behavior that you don't want to do, but you find yourself continuing to do? Try to see the fuse that ignites the bomb of emotions or poor behavior 
And if you can do that, it's going to help you identify the choices or actions that struck the proverbial match. And it's far easier to not ignite a bomb than to diffuse one. Second, you can foster a healthy learning environment. Be proactive about bringing positive things into your life that encourage growth and new ideas. Learning is a great exercise for the brain. And sometimes our brain goes to negative places out of a lack of having positive places to go. Third, learn a new language. This has overlapping patterns of understanding that broaden our outlooks and expand our vocabularies while increasing our ability to see symbolism and patterns. Learning that an object is separate from its linguistic identifier is a big concept for our brain to grasp. Next, learn a musical instrument. Music is another form of language, and it has the same benefits of learning a second language, as well as developing audio skills and some physical skills. Her fifth idea is to travel. Nothing broadens the mind like travel. The world cannot be contained to our narrow assumptions, and getting out there and experiencing other cultures and places shatters the old assumptions and expands our perspective, and thus our brain. Sixth, get adequate rest. This one's undervalued. Our brains need a reset. Sleep is essential. Have you ever had a problem with your computer and once you've rebooted it, things just got better? Well, that's the same for our brain. Just like after you work your muscles out, they need to rest so that they can rebuild and repair. So does your brain. Physical exercise, seven. There's too much to share here about all of the good that exercise does. It balances brain chemicals, helps with hormones, and improves our overall well-being. These are just a few of the benefits. Just get out there and do it. Do some form. Uh, take it at your pace, but try to make it happen. Eighth idea is to reduce your stress. Easier said than done, but when your hair is on fire, it's hard to plan a healthy menu. If our brains are always responding to what they perceive as high-stakes scenarios, they are in survival mode and are not available to rebuild and redirect. Number nine, find purpose. We covered this one in previous episodes. Having a purpose in the, is the number one factor in long-term well-being and happiness. Here's a small example of the power of having a purpose. I want to be there for my grandkids, and this purpose fuels my commitment to good health practices. Number 10, celebrate small victories. You know you have them. Don't overlook them or discount them because you haven't arrived at your final destination. Celebrate the good along the way, and that will keep you moving towards your ultimate destination. All right, her last one, number 11, find people who share your journey. We all need a tribe someone who shares our values and offers us encouragement as we strive to make changes in more positive directions. All right, so that was kind of a lot, but if you're trying to rewire your brain, don't give up. There are tools that you can use and it's absolutely possible to do so. So here's our play of the week. Identify an unwanted habit or thought. Maybe it's not putting the lid back on the toothpaste. Maybe you need to drink more water. Maybe it's a nagging little, almost imperceptible idea that you'll always fail, so why try? Next, after you've identified the thing you want to change, 
make a plan to do something instead of what you've been doing. With the toothpaste, plan to hold the lid in your hand until you've squozen the toothpaste out onto your toothbrush. Then your brain will be better able to remember to put the lid back on. If it's drinking more water, make a plan to fill up a water bottle with the amount you want to drink in the day and take it with you. If it's that negative thought you almost don't notice but believe, decide on a counter affirmation that you start your day off with, repeating while you brush your hair in the morning. Then throughout the day, when that negative thought trickles into your consciousness, repeat the positive affirmation, which is effectively laying down a new track for your brain to follow instead of falling into the old bad habit. Next week, we're talking about the greatest predictor of happiness over the holidays. You don't want to miss it. Until then, keep practicing happy. You got this.